This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. today's show, our guest Shanta Permavardana talks to us about contextual theology, how it is important to seminaries in the church, and how his 40-year-old organization, Omnia, is reimagining itself as a leader in contextual theology for the 21st century. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Shanta Pramordna. He's the president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, a global leadership training and consulting program serving religious and civic leaders who are committed to solving society's most intractable problems such as racism, extremism, and economic justice. Prior to assuming this post, he was the director of interreligious dialogue and cooperation at the World Council of Churches, a worldwide fellowship of 349 Protestant and Orthodox churches and Churches and, churches and denominations based in Geneva, Switzerland. He founded the Chicago Ashram of Jesus Christ, a Christian community with an outreach to South Asian immigrants, and served for 14 years as senior pastor of Ellis Avenue Church on the south side of Chicago. Additionally, Dr. Pramordna has served as Associate General Secretary for Interfaith Relations at the National Council of Churches of Christ in New York. During his time at the During his time at the World Council of Churches, Dr. Pramwardena specialized in helping global church bodies articulate comprehensive theological bases for interreligious dialogue and cooperation relevant to contemporary contexts. Specifically, he spearheaded a joint initiative. Specifically, he spearheaded a joint initiative between the Vatican, World Evangelical Alliance, and the World Council of Churches, seeking agreement on a code of conduct for Christian witness. Shanta Pramwardena, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. So. I want to start out by talking about the organization that you are the president of, Omnia. It is a new organization, but it has a long and storied history, and I wonder if you could briefly tell us about that. Indeed. Omnia's predecessor is Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education, also known as SCOOP. It began in 1976 when uh, three urban pastors, Ray Barkey, Bill Leslie, and Bud Ipema, Uh, in Chicago, decided that seminaries are not adequately training pastors for the urban context. At the time, there was a move towards a donut-shaped idea of of preparing pastors for the suburban context. You remember Gibson Winter and uh, uh, the suburban captivity of the church that came back out in the 1950s and the 60s. The same kind of thing that was going on even in the 1970s. So what they did was they they got several seminaries to cooperate to send their students into the city. And when they came into the city, they they put the city, the students right into the city's context. That is, they put them out into the streets and the neighborhoods 
so that they could go out into churches in the community, they could go out to various community organizations, hospitals, police stations, wherever people gather and listen to their concerns, listen to their needs and their struggles and their pain and their stories of joy and laughter, of course, as well. And out of that, they attempted to let a new theology emerge. In other words, they were building a theology uh, from the ground up rather than learn a theology from the top down. Would this be the beginnings of what we might call constructive theology, or, or is constructive theology moving in an even different direction than this kind of building process? The, the difference between contextual theology and constructive theology is a rather nuanced one, and I think that what we have, we, we have begun to be known as a constructive theology is an attempt to, uh, to, to, to balance what we have that is the top-down theology or what we sometimes now call received theology, uh, to, to balance that with, with thinking about new ways of articulating our theological positions. Contextual theology, on the other hand, is a, is a fresh attempt to build something new. That that's how I understand it, at least. Now, when when you were bringing and when when the seminary consortium for urban pastoral education scoop was bringing students into this urban context, I'm assuming that they measured the impact and they had an idea of how this actually changed the perspectives of the students. And I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about what was the impact on a typical student who came from a seminary setting and was suddenly in this urban contextual educational environment. A couple of backgrounds, background points to that. At the early stages, we had one cohort of students. Uh, later, it changed to a, a series of courses that we did with for the various seminaries. So, so it changed over the over the course of the forty years that we've been doing that naturally. But we we also recognized that that there are certain limitations in our theologies that are taught in the seminary. For example, we said to ourselves, in most of our theologies, there's what we called a white normativity. Uh, that, that This is what liberation theologians in Latin America called North Atlantic theology. Uh, what we used to know as theology is indeed a North Atlantic theology, or we began to call it white normativity. And therefore, we, we, we created a program that was specifically geared for African-Americans, which we call the Center for African-American Theological Studies, and, a specific, and specifically one specifically geared for the Latin Americans, which we call the Advanced Latino or Latina Theological Education. So a student coming into SCOOP could experience all of the above, and so it was a very different experience in the sense that the, the African-American program used specifically African-American or African theologians in, in all its work. And the, and the Latin American program used Latino theologians, either resident in, America, in the United States or, or in Latin America, as their sources. That was a critical difference. So they were immersed in these traditions so that they began to get a very different perspective about how we do theology. 
And this we called at the time our contextuality. We, we began to express it in that contextuality. So what happens to a student? You, you have a very different experience when you, when you come to school. And some of them stayed for four or five courses that, that with us. Some of them did not do that. And when they went out to their parishes, then they had a very different orientation towards their parish ministry. Here's what happens. Because we ask the questions from people who are living in the community and let that drive our theological conversation, when difficult pastoral situations arise, you don't have to start to think about, you know, what would Bonhoeffer or Barth or Brueggemann have to say about this? But, but you know how to begin from this struggle of what am I going to eat today or what am I going to do with my pregnant teenage daughter today or, or where am I going to live today or those the answers to those questions come more naturally because you know how to, to address that in the light of scripture and tradition rather than do some mental jugglery about thinking about okay what would the traditions have to say about the difficult questions that arise in the context of pastoral ministry and so this this was when you when Scoop got started, my understanding is that contextual theology was a movement, but it wasn't yet a movement in the seminaries. And so at first, the organization Scoop was working as a para-seminary organization. But when I went to seminary in the early 2000s, contextual education was absolutely a part of the warp and woof of, of the curriculum. What changed over that time? Do you interpret that as, as Scoop winning the battle, or did other people take your good idea and, uh, and profit off of it? Well, I hope they took the good idea and profited off of it. I mean, that's the whole purpose. The contextual theology movement, I, uh, you know, it probably predated, obviously predated this, but Paulo Freire, uh, in his uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, published in 1968, was one of those people who articulated this contextual method very clearly. And he was one of those who, um, uh, who, who, who gave birth to the liberation theology movement in, in Latin America. So from 1968 or so, you know, 1968 is also when the liberation theology movement got codified with uh, the Latin American Council of Bishops that met in Medellin, Colombia in 1960. So that's a critical date. But from from that date onwards, through the 70s, and when I went to seminary, David, it was the 1970s, so I date myself. But there was this movement about, and remember, we were just coming off the 60s in the United States as well, where where all kinds of things were in flux. And and in this context, there were new ways or attempts to, to think about new ways of doing things. And contextual theology was just coming into being at the time. And so this is what they experimented with uh, as contextual theology. I, you know, I, 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 I feel like we have experimented with this for 40 years. So we, we have some expertise in doing it this way. Um, I have myself a deep um, experience in this back from coming from Sri Lanka where I come from. So that's another story. But this is the, uh, the good answer to your question, I think. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with our guest Shanta Primavardhana, and he is president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. 
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to our guest, Shanta Primavardina. He's president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. We're talking about contextual theology and the ways in which that idea is changing from the founding of this organization 40 years ago into the 21st century. The organization is moving away from the name Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education, or SCOOP, and it has now adopted the new name Omnia. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about the prompting for that change and what has changed. We were coming up to 40 years, and we wanted to celebrate that. A couple of ways of celebrating. One was to say, we need to say that we have achieved a significant amount of what we set out to achieve. Another way of saying it also was to say, now what do we do for the next 40 years? When I came into this organization back in 2010, the board said to me that I bring two gifts to the organization. One was my interfaith expertise. My PhD is in this is my experience for a career and also my international relationships. I have connections everywhere because of my work at the World Council of Churches. So they said, this is an important gift that you bring that we ought to use. But when we came to the point of our strategic planning in 2016, we also asked ourselves some very critical questions about what is going to happen 40 years from now. 40 years from 2015, when we began this process, was 2055. And we recognized that there would be 10 billion people on this earth, and we recognized that two-thirds of them would be living in cities that are a million people or more. So everything that we know about cities will change at that time. And people who are very different from each other, racially, ethnically, religiously, will be living on top of each other and will be fighting for food and water. That will be the kind of situation that we will face at that time. How do you prepare the religious leader at 2055 to address that situation, and we said we can't wait till 2050 to do that. The person who is 25 years old now will be 65 years old in 2055, and that person will be a head of a church, a bishop, a president of an organization, you know, will be in some significant position. We need to train that person now. So that is how we began that conversation. And uh, we said in order to do that, we need to use these two things. We need to understand how to relate to people who are different in terms of faith, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of race. And we need to take this out to the world. We said to ourselves, we can't simply do this within our seminary environment. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you literally as a board said, we want to identify the people who will be influential 40 years from now today and start training them today 
for a world that does not yet exist. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, indeed. So where do you get that kind of vision? That's a visionary movement, yes? Well, we have a good board. That's... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we, we said to ourselves, well, here's how we began. We said, well, we've, this was our first 40 years. What does the second 40 look like? That question immediately puts us to 2050. So, and, and when you say that, I think about my own children, who uh, my, my, my children are seven and six right now. They'll be 47 and 46. And I'm thinking about the kind of world that they will live in and what kind of persons will they be? What kind of leaders will they be? What kind of influence will they have? And I'm realizing that a lot of what I do as a parent is anticipating that future them that will exist. And it's a very similar sort of thing that you're doing with Omnia. You're, you're now saying, okay, well, we, we're seeing this vision that is there in the future, and we want to build towards it in the same way that for the first 40 years you built a, a sort of theological project. Now it sounds almost like you're wanting to build a policy project or a political project. Is that a fair characterization? Yes to all of that. Uh, in fact, in fact, uh, life is complicated. We can't comp- compartmentalize it. So it is policy, it is politics, it is economics, it is it is interfaith relations. It, you know, all of the above. I want to tell you one other thing about what what we decided in that process. <clears throat> um, we read an interesting book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is a social psychologist. He tells fabulous stories and and derives good principles out of it. And he takes that story of David and Goliath and talks about how underdogs and misfits can actually slay giants by using a slingshot that they always used and are experts at using, but by changing the rules of engagement and by tweaking that a little bit, that you can actually slay the Goliaths. He asked us two questions. One question was, who's your enemy? And we said to ourselves, we are a Christian organization. We don't do that very well. (laughs) However, uh, as we thought about it, we said to ourselves, there's one enemy that we can all agree on, and that is extremism. Uh, We recognize that religious extremism is everywhere. In, in all religious traditions, and we recognized that, uh, that it is not only religious, but sometimes it is political and economic as well. So we, we said there's this huge issue of extremisms that is, that's out there that we ought to deal with. But then we said, well, you know, that's a massive undertaking. Just, you can't, it boggles the mind to think about that. But then it would have boggled young David's mind to think about taking on the giant Goliath. The second question Malcolm Gladwell asks is, what is your slingshot? And we said to ourselves, for 40 years, we have done a thing called contextual theology. That's our slingshot. What's the difference? Most theologies are top-down theologies because it comes from somewhere else. It comes from, from history, from tradition. It's somebody, you know, all of these great theologians, you know, Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Schleiermacher and Barton. Bruner and all of these wonderful people were children of their context. And, and they, they responded to the questions that arose out of their context. It, that's not our context. So when we learn theology, we learn this as a top-down, what we have begun to call a received theology. So 
We said, what we have is a theology that arises from the ground. The problem with received theology, we also said this, uh, and one problem, but we identified a couple of problems with received theology, that it brings with it two attributes, at least, that are important to our conversation. One is an exclusivity. We are right and you're wrong. We are going to heaven, you are going to hell, kind of thinking. Now, that's simplifying it a bit, but that's one of those characteristics. The other is a cultural superiority. Our way is right. Now, if you dig down a little bit in any of our conversations going on in the United States today, even around the political conversations around Muslims or African-Americans or Latinos, you you get to understand this whole idea of white supremacy has a superiority built into it. In certain theological traditions, there's an exclusivity built into it. So we said we need to break down the exclusivity and superiority and build it from the bottom up. And when we build it from the bottom up, we ask a different set of questions. And suddenly, our Muslim and our Hindu and our Jew and our, uh, and our Buddhist neighbor, they are struggling with the same kinds of questions. So we are not debating matters of theology first. We are talking about what am I going to do with my sick child today? So my evangelical listener friends will say, yes, you engage with those questions and you build the relationship specifically so that at a certain point, you can evangelize the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, because really there is only one way. And at the end of the day, that's really what we're doing. So at the end of the day, is that really what Omnia is doing? No. There are two imperatives in in the gospel. One is the Great Commission, which your evangelical friends, my evangelical friends, will say is paramount. Uh, the other is the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and your neighbor as yourself. So I think when our evangelical friends say, we want to focus on the Great Commission, there is another wing to this bird. And, and that's the Great Commandment. So how do, we, how do we love our neighbor as ourselves, our Muslim neighbor and our Hindu neighbor and our Jewish neighbor is really the question that arises. Now, I know the, I know the, the, the argument that loving requires that we convert, but I want to nuance that. Uh, loving requires that we share and we witness. Loving conversion is not our business at all. Conversion is God's business. But in order to genuinely share with somebody, you need a relationship. And, 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 and loving your neighbor creates the opportunity for you to build a relationship. Now, you share with that person that which is ultimate, of ultimate significance to you. But at the same time, you need to be listening to that person to share that which is of ultimate significance to her or him. That's the difference. When that happens, now you have a genuine dialogue. And so dialogue is not antithetical to evangelism. Evangelism can happen. In fact, in any serious dialogue, some conversion is taking place all the time because I'm, I'm beginning to see you as a different kind of human being than I, than I thought before. So... So I think that these two actually go together. I, I want to say that there are two wings of a bird, 
And the gospel requires that we have both the great commandment and the great commission in order to uh, be fully authentic to that. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with our guest, Shanta Primavardhana, and he is president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Shanta Primavardhana, president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. So the work that you're doing, you said earlier it has a policy agenda. It's got a global religious agenda. It's got an agenda of relationship, but not necessarily conversion. And I'm, again, going to play the part of my uh, more conservative listeners. You sound an awful lot like a social justice warrior. You sound an awful lot like a person who is driven by a social gospel and not the real gospel. When you get criticisms like that, how do you and your colleagues at Omnia respond? I want to say that there is nothing called a social gospel. Gospel is gospel. I am following Jesus. That's what I'm doing. When Jesus called us to discipleship, it, it was to, to follow in the way that he showed us how to do this. He, he was a radical. He, he came from the margins. He, he was born in the margins. He lived in the margins. Scripture says, what good can come out of Nazareth? That's how it's said. And, and, and then he lived among the people of the margins and was crucified outside the city in the margins. I'm following the Lord of the margins. And he was the one who challenged the religious authorities and the political authorities of his day and the economic authorities of his day, that's why he was crucified. Now, thank God that he was resurrected and we have salvation because of that. But that's, the, that's my Lord. That's the one I follow. So I want to say that the, the dichotomy that we have figured out between what we call social gospel and the authentic or real gospel is a false dichotomy. There's a story from the scriptures where Jesus is talking to a woman at a well, and and she says at one point, you worship God in this place, and we worship God in this different place. Would you consider that a moment of contextual theologizing? So I'm, I'm worshiping God from this place. You worship God from this different place. And Jesus responds, eventually, we're all going to worship God in spirit and in truth. But for the moment, we're worshiping God from our different places. Is, is that contextual theology? Indeed it is, because, because what Jesus did at that moment, in, in that encounter, was to encounter a woman and talk to this woman who was so different, where a Jew would not talk to a Samaritan woman, a woman, by the way, and, and, and he's a rabbi, and he's talking to her, a woman from the margins, and he risks contamination in, in doing that. And in that conversation, he raises with her the contextual questions that are most important to her. And out of that comes this 
beautiful theological understanding. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See how the theology developed out of the question about, you know, can I have a glass of water? And so from a, from a question about can I have a glass of water, a need, it develops to a conversation about location and place. And from there, we get to a theological truth. God is spirit. Indeed. I love this. This is I'm learning here. This is fantastic. <laughs> so you have you have flagged extremism as a problem. How does anyone who is engaged in work that is intended to shape and influence the culture check themselves against the demons of extremism? How, how do you avoid that in your own work? One of the important things that we have said to ourselves at Omnia is that all of us fit within a spectrum between marginality and privilege. We have said to ourselves that we throw our lot with those in the margins. But then sometimes it is difficult for any of us to understand where we fit. And so we've said to ourselves, we need to be able to articulate what is the marginality that I carry and what privileges do I have and be able to speak forthrightly and authentically to that marginality. So we are always, we always have the representation of marginality in our midst. When we are aware of our marginality, there is a vulnerability that, that arises. That vulnerability says, I, I need to be aware of the people who are around me, people who are like me, and the people who, are, who lack privilege, and sometimes I have to be with them and working with them and engaging with them in order to lift ourselves up together. That vulnerability is, I think, what keeps us from extremism. Some of our work today is in Nigeria. This is in northeastern Nigeria, where Boko Haram is active. So this is a good example of, of a place where extremism is rife. Uh, Boko Haram uh, is one of the deadliest groups of terrorists that are there in the world today. Some think that they are even deadlier than ISIS. So they are attacking Christians, but also Muslims that are not a part of their own, uh, who don't believe in the way that they do. It's not an Islamic group as such, but it's a Wahhabi group. You know, Wahhabis are a Saudi-inspired, Saudi Arabian-inspired, extremist, fundamentalist interpretation of Islam that is very different from, from the mainstream Islam. So mainstream Muslims are also being attacked by this group. But what we have to do is to be able to bring Muslims and Christians together who, who have not previously come together at all because they have had their own sense of extremism. They have had their own sense of, you know, my, my community or my understanding of reality is the right one, the true one, and everybody else is false. And Muslims would say, these are infidels. And others would say, Christians would say, these guys are going to hell and I'm going to heaven. You know, I mean, that kind of thing has been going on. So, so that is bordering on extremism that, that pushed to the extreme ends up in Wahhabism of Boko Haram. So how do you break that thing down? When you break it down, now you begin to relate at a level of vulnerability. When I have Muslims and Chris, Muslim and Christian leaders in our training sessions, 
one of the critical one of the important things we say we need to learn to be self critical of our own beliefs so we want to say i have five things if i might say that quickly um we need to listen deeply to each other we need to suspend judgment we need to appreciate what other be- others believe and we have to be self critical of our own beliefs and we have to look for the new insight that arises from the middle of the group those are the five principles that i take out in any dialogical activity but the perhaps the most difficult thing is to be self critical of our own beliefs in the presence of others the the strength of a dialogue is when when we can be self critical not only among our own people but we can be self critical in the presence of others now you are seeing a vulnerability that was not possible before it is that vulnerability that i think keeps us from being extremists ourselves that's an that's a fantastic answer um so what then do you see as the as if you were to I want to ask this question three different ways, and I need to decide <laughs> one of them. A moment ago, you said there's not the social gospel and the gospel. There's simply the gospel. If you could characterize the gospel that you understand in a phrase or even a sentence, how would you characterize it? Mm. I want to say that we follow the radical Jesus. the jesus's radicality is not just uh, the way that we use the term uh, flippantly now to speak about people who are different from us radicality means going to the roots and and it is going to the soil it is going to the place of location it's going to the margin and it is out of that margin that jesus comes it is in the margin that jesus functions and it is to the margin that he goes to be crucified all of that you know how do we the gospel to me is how we follow him in that journey uh, and um i think that's the shortest way to describe that the most succinct way to describe that what is it that american christians misunderstand about global christianity Mm. What a good question. Christianity is not a western phenomenon. Uh it is a global phenomenon and it is mostly in the global south. Africa, Asia, Latin America are uh, have significant Christian populations and thriving spiritualities. What is interesting is that the center of gravity for Christianity has shifted to those locations. so that's the first thing part of the difficulty with the christianities that are in those locations is also that often it is a western brand of christianity that is practiced so i think we need to be careful about imposing american kinds of theologies in different parts of the world the real struggle for christianities in asia africa and latin america has been to think about what is a contextual theology that is how do you remove all the western accoutrements from the gospel 
and plant the gospel in that soil and let it blossom and flower. And now you can see what comes out of it. And, and we've been hesitant to do that in many parts of the world. But that is the contextual theology that needs to happen there as well. So what do we not understand? I think we don't understand that there is a dynamic spirituality that is going on, and that dynamic spirituality has uh, very critical elements around politics, economics, interreligious relations, climate change, all of those kinds of questions. There's a, there's a robust conversation that is going on in the global south. We're speaking today with Shanta Primavardhana. He's the president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to our guest, Shanta Primavardhana. He's president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. We're talking about contextual theology and the ways in which that idea is changing from the founding of this organization 40 years ago into the 21st century. So you have worked here in the American context. You've also worked in a global context with the World Council of Churches, and you were born in Sri Lanka. I happen to be a Baptist. Why am I a Baptist? Because Baptist missionaries are the ones who converted my grandfather. There is no other reason. There is no reason why Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Anglican makes any difference in Sri Lanka. It doesn't. But but, but we've somehow... Uh, somehow imbibe that tradition. So there is an imperialism that still goes out from from the Western world into those countries. So, for example, there are certain branches of Pentecostal tradition that are very popular in Africa and Latin America and so on. And, and, and much of the mainstream Pentecostal tradition is just fine. But there are some parts of the Pentecostal tradition that has gone out that have of end-time theologies that are sometimes very detrimental uh, to our self-understanding, both as Christians as as human beings. And uh, and in those, there is, a, I believe, a skewed understanding that comes from the American, particularly American um, strain of Pentecostal tradition that, that moves it in that direction. So now at the sort of turning point of 40 years of a particular type of work, and now what was the Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education, SCOOP, has now 
taken a bold new step. It has become Omnia, and it is now reaching towards that that next 40 years. I'm going to ask you two questions that I, I, I ask many of my guests, and it, it's sort of a, the yin and the yang. It's it's first of all at the at this at this turning point, what still frustrates you? That's the first question, and then I'm going to ask you what it is that gives you hope. So to begin with, when you look at the world situation, when you look at global Christianity, when you look at the 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 actions of Christians here in America, when you look at your own work uh, as a as a theological educator, what is it that brings you frustration? Uh, we have a long road ahead, uh, and it's a difficult road. Uh, it's it's difficult because um, a lot of people find it difficult to understand uh, or even buy what we are talking about because we are dealing with a paradigm shift. I often describe paradigms as as frames or cages. Uh, and and within that cage, uh, there are certain rules. And if you know the rules and if you are very good at following the rules, you become an expert. The problem with paradigm shifts is that the frame changes, the cage breaks out, and all of the experts come down to zero. And nobody wants to do that. And, and so... What we are dealing with, we are at a very interesting moment in Christian history in the United States and Europe where we have this phenomenon of of large numbers of millennials becoming nuns and even nuns meaning uh, people who uh, check off no religious affiliation in a, in a questionnaire. And then there are another group of people called duns, people who are you know, baby boomers who have gone to church for 50 years in their lives or 60 years in their lives and suddenly get up one day and decide, I'm done. So so this phenomenon is going on in the churches here. And there is this churning that is going on in the culture all over the place. There's all this terrorism going on. There's all the, uh, the, 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 the changes that are happening because we have now a Trump administration that is in a huge culture war, and we, we are we are this in this within this churning. If we try to do the same things the way we've always done it, we are not going to get into any good solutions. The paradigm must shift, and this is a good time for the paradigm to shift. It upsets a lot of people when we do that, but I think the time is right, and 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 the frustration is really about how quickly can we get this message out, uh, out out to the world and how much money do we have to raise in order to make that happen. So currently, we are working in different cities in the United States and we are in Nigeria and next we are going to Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and in fact, Germany has invited us because Germany is also dealing with this massive migration crisis. And they are Muslims, and they are not Germans, they are Syrians or Africans. They don't know what to do with that. How do you find a new theology that comes up from the ground to deal with that question? So the massiveness of the project in front of us um, is both exciting and uh, troubling because I feel like we are at at the right moment and we need hundreds of people engaged in this movement to take this message out of paradigm shift towards the bottom of theology. 
On the matter of hope? Yes, what, what keeps you hopeful? Yes, well, the matter of hope, I am very excited about what's going on in Nigeria. We've been there twice now. Okay. Once in March, once in August, and we'll go there again in December. We have now given formal training to over 400 Muslim and Christian leaders. And among them, a whole bunch of women, 150 women turned out. These are all professional people. Uh, and, uh, and they are now able to take, after our advanced training that we are giving them as well, to their mosques and their churches and their organizations so that they can preach, teach, and lead based on these principles. We have a colleague there who is on the ground organizer, who is an on the ground organizer. And he has now established 30 small groups of Muslims and Christians in, in, in villages around the city of Gombe. And these people are undertaking projects that, as, that they can do together in their community as Muslims and Christians. This has never been done before in that community. So we are seeing significant changes take place. A little example, our colleague Abarikala went to uh, speak at a pastor's wives conference. 350 pastor's wives gathered. And after a mini training that he gave them, they, these ladies decided that when they go back home, they want to make a commitment that they will build a relationship with the imam wife, imam's wife in the community. And I said to him, if you can get the women engaged this way, that's the breakthrough moment for us. That's just an example of the hunger that there is in, in these places of the margins where they're really struggling for a new way of doing things. That's the hope I have. Well, Shanta Primavardana, I have enjoyed so much our conversation together. Thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you, David. I appreciate the time. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dahl did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.